Hello and welcome to the Marlborough Book Festival podcast, the place where you can hear writers talk about their work, their lives and the inspiration behind their writing. I'm Claudia, the treasurer on the committee, and today I'm delighted to be introducing the inspiring Abbas Nazari, speaking about his book, After the Tampa. We were thrilled to have Abbas as our guest for the opening event of the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. Abbas was seven years old when his family fled the Taliban in Afghanistan, hoping to find a new home in Australia. The journey that followed, including a sinking fishing boat, heroic rescue by the Tampa container ship, and doors closed by the Australian government, caught the world's attention. More than 20 years after the Nazari family was resettled in New Zealand, Abbas is a prominent advocate for refugees, was a semi-finalist for the 2022 Young New Zealander of the Year, and author of the best-selling memoir, After the Tampa. This is the first podcast from the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. Every fortnight, we will share sessions from this year's event, all the way through to the 2023 Marlborough Book Festival. For now, please enjoy Abbas Nazari speaking to Paula Morris. I can't think of a better segue than that. <laughs> That was incredible. Especially it was about refugees. It's very yeah, appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Kia ora, Gavin. Kia ora, everyone. I am Paula Morris. It's my pleasure to be here tonight and to be interviewing Abbas Nazari. I've written a very short introduction for him because I figure if you didn't know he was here, you wouldn't be here. So uh, Abbas left Afghanistan, as you all know, at the age of seven. And after facing many trials and political deadlocks and the shenanigans of the Australian government, uh, became a New Zealand, well, refugee here in New Zealand, a resident, then a citizen, a spelling bee almost champion, and a Fulbright scholar. He's also written a brilliant book, After the Tampa, From Afghanistan to New Zealand, that we'll be discussing tonight. Um, Abbas, you say that you gave this book, well, your, your name is on the cover, but the story belongs to all of the 433 asylum seekers who were rescued from drowning in the Indian Ocean by the Norwegian container ship, the Tampa, in 2001. So tonight we're gonna to talk, Abbas says he's gonna talk a lot, so we'll try to rein him in. Uh, there will be time for audience questions, and we'll make sure there's time for audience questions, and then afterwards Abbas will be signing copies of his book outside, and I really encourage you all to get it because it is a really gripping and exciting story. Now tonight, is it okay if we begin with a short reading? Yes. Is that all yes. right? Yep, no, that's perfect. And firstly, thank you all for coming along tonight. I thought um, I was the draw card for the opening night, but then I had a taste of the, uh, the Astrolab rosé out there, and um, <laughs> I can see why everyone came through tonight. So thank you all for joining us. Um, this is one of my favourite passages in the book, and I think it's a perfect place to start. A year later, we were sitting at dinner one night when Dad announced the news that we would change our lives forever. We're leaving. We cannot stay here anymore. There's a deafening silence as his words hung in the air. It wasn't a surprise. It was the spring of 2001 and the Taliban were firmly in charge of Afghanistan. They had just destroyed the great Buddhas of Bamiyan and set about massacring the Hazara living underneath their shadow. By then, 
More than half of the homes in our village of Sangjoy had been boarded up and abandoned. Our once thriving village was dying as if felled by a deadly blight. Every day we noticed more classmates absent. Worse, some nights we could hear the thunder of automatic gunfire from the valleys close by, shattering the tranquility we had once known. As every day passed, death kept crept closer. And the reason I chose that as the opening passage is, is one step back. This picture is, was taken by myself in 2011, 2012 when I went back to Afghanistan for the first time since we had left. It's my village. I took this photo standing atop a hill looking down on the village of Sangjoy. And I thought it was so appropriate to begin here because it kind of completely uh, you know, dismisses any notion of what most people think of when they think of Afghanistan, right? You think of plains and deserts, and while that's true of some parts of the country, uh, this is where I'm from, right? And it's very similar to, to central Otago, and maybe a little bit, you know, Marlborough as well. Incredibly hot, dry summers, snow-capped mountains and blistering cold winters. Some days would wake up with snow right above the door line of our house, right? And, and it's so different to what most people think, and that passage kind of, like I said, it, the situation in 2001, we had tranquility and peace in our little village, but it was shattered, right? And we didn't want to leave, but yet, you know, there was a new force, a new government in power, and, and now we're compelled to leave our home. So even though your book is called After the Tampa, there is quite a lot that's before the Tampa as well, which I found incredibly interesting because I realised I knew much less about Afghanistan than I thought I did, even though obviously it's been in the news for my entire life. Now, would you talk to us a bit uh, to explain something you say in the book, that Afghanistan is a multi-ethnic, multilingual country, and that you, your group is Hazara, which is 10 to 20% of the population. Now, Hazara have been persecuted since the 19th century in the Iron Emir. This was all new to me. So would you give us yeah. some context, please? Yeah, that's right. You know, something that I find incredible is how Afghanistan has been plastered across, you know, TV and media and newspapers and had so much coverage, and yet there is still so little understanding of the dynamics on the ground there. So to kind of give you the um, two-minute, you know, history lesson, Afghanistan, by sheer, you know, fortune or, or misfortune of its geography, um, has been at the behest of different kinds of powers and militaries and ideologies that have swept uh, you know, humanity, essentially, dating all the way back to the times of Alexander the Great, right, who, whose empire stretched, away, stretched right to the edge of what is now known Afghanistan. His first wife was, was, was a lady from what is now Afghanistan. They called it Bactria back then. And then multiple empires over the years, <coughs> you know, I... <coughs> I often joke that Genghis Khan is my great uncle, right? You know, the Mongolian Empire also swept through. And when there's different groups of people, it forms all of those things that we love about an ancient civilization. All of the things that we travel to Europe for on our holidays, right? The, the cuisine, the culture, the history, the architecture, the literature, all of those things. Afghanistan and that part of the world is full of that. But also, when you've got multiple groups of people vying for control of a certain area, sadly, it often also leads to conflict. And that is why violence has kind of been etched into the DNA of that particular area of the world that would later become the modern country of Afghanistan. 
So Afghanistan, I describe it like a patchwork quilt of different groups of people that live and trade and socialize and, and, and make the fabric of the country. You know, they look different, they speak multiple different languages and dialects, uh, worship differently, uh, they have their own culture and customs, and by and large, they get along. But every time there is a change of power or a new force comes into being, those ethnic and sectarian cleavages, they really start to, to become very prominent. And, and like you mentioned, <clears throat> my people, the Hazara, which is like 15, 20% of the population, right? We're probably the, by whatever measure you use, maybe third, fourth largest ethnic group, and we've always felt the sharp end of the stick when it comes to a change in, in, in whoever is in charge. And I detail in the book, you know, some of the, the history of, of, of oppression and, and later genocide that took place against the Hazara peoples of Afghanistan, right? So our heritage, ethnically and genetically, we look different. We have Central Asian genetics. Uh, we speak a different language. We speak Dari, which is, a, which is a dialect of Persian, right, which is what they speak in Iran. Um, and we worship differently in that we're Shia Muslim versus the majority Sunni Muslim. And, and we live in certain parts of the country, particularly the central highlands of Afghanistan. And so very distinct in that regard. And that's why whenever there's been a change in power, it's like very easy to point at the, the person who, li- who looks and speaks and, and, and worships differently as the scapegoat. Now, when your father made that call, dramatic call for you to leave, your oldest brother had already been sent away, and would you explain why? Yeah, that's right. My older brother, um, when the Taliban took over in 94, it took him about 18 to 24 months to pretty much take over 90% of the country, not by land area, but by population. Afghanistan's so mountainous, it's very hard to control the whole country, but you can take over individual cities. And there were pockets of resistance initially. They were kind of quickly wiped out and stamped out. And there was, you know, Hazara kind of rebellion or militia. Um, but, you know, we're being so at the bottom of the heap when it comes to getting resources or having connections or all the rest of it. Um, there wasn't, we couldn't put up much of a fight. And so every kind of military-aged male, right, anyone kind of 14 or 15 up, uh, if you were caught uh, out there on the highways, or if you put, you know, at a at a at a boundary or a pit stop or a checkpoint by the Taliban, and you're a, you know, you look different. You can't cover that up. You look very Asiatic in appearance. Um, if you're caught by the Taliban, at the very least, you know, you'd get a severe beating. But uh, you know, on more occasions than than not, you know, they'd probably be killed, shot, put on the side of the road to be made an example of. And so when my older brother Hussein, when he, you know, he, he was of age, or he just turned 15, 16, um, you know, dad said, you've got to leave the country, and um, smuggled him out of the country into Iran, into neighbouring Iran, yeah. And there are a lot of Hazara in <coughs> Iran, yes? That's right, that's right. So, I mean, refugee outflows out of Afghanistan are, you know, in the millions, uh, but disproportionately it is Hazara that make up that refugee population, particularly because you go into Iran, just cross the border west into Iran or east into Pakistan, and that's, there's very large Hazara populations in both those countries, numbering in the, in the one to two million range. Yeah. 
often doing drudgery and and, yeah. and living terrible existences, yes. Yeah, that's right, because those countries, they're not signatories to the UN Refugee Convention. You know, they, some of the governments, depending on the economic uh, state of their own country at the time, if they're doing really well, then their generosity might increase, so they turn a blind eye to the existence of these illegals, as they refer to them. But then if there's some political event that they want to kind of used to their advantage, right? They'll say, no, it's these guys' fault, all these people that are out here camping in our streets or whatever. And so they have no right to work, to live, to have their kids go to school or whatever, even if their kids or their children were born or even if they marry with a local Iranian or Pakistani woman uh, and have children there, they still aren't seen as, as rightful citizens. So not only are they denied those rights, but their children, so f multiple generations of Afghan refugees living in Iran and Pakistan, they still live as second-class citizens. Yeah. Now, you mentioned the Taliban before and looking different. One of the great and exciting and dangerous moments in the book is when your family is trying to get out mm. of Afghanistan, your father's beard is assessed by a member of the Taliban. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the Taliban are they are very... <laughs> They, they, they're very literal people, right? They, 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 their whole mantra, their whole doctrine when they came over to take Afghanistan, and I say came over, you know, um, pointedly because the Taliban actually, their base of ideology, their base of financing, their foundation, their military headquarters, all their leadership are actually based across the border in Pakistan. And so these guys were imported or exported out of Pakistan into Afghanistan. They're not a a homegrown movement. Their foot soldiers are, you know, dis disenchanted uh, young men, usually farmers from very rural tribal areas of Afghanistan who see no other point, so they pick up the arms and they join out of excitement and the opportunity to, you know, earn a bit of money. But the thought, <coughs> the foundations, all of that is kind of imported from across the border. And so, their whole ideology, their whole doctrine was to, quote, you know, make Islam great again, right? They wanted to establish a new country. So, sorry, just to take 10 steps back, the Taliban are the latest iteration in a century-long debate and discussion about the role and the glory of the Muslim world. You see, following World War I, the Ottoman Empire, which was a Muslim uh, empire, Islamic empire, they collapsed, right? There was nothing left. And so a lot of Islamic scholars said, why have we collapsed? We were once such great powers. What is the reason for our decline? What is our role in the world? And so over the decades, over the 19th, the 20th century, different thoughts emerged. Different thoughts emerged to explain that to try and answer that question. And by the 60s and 70s, the thought that was starting to really entrench itself was by you know, a bunch of scholars out of Egypt and the Middle East who said that the reason that the Islamic world is in decline is because the way Islam is being practiced at all levels of society, in business, in trade, in governance, in the way our society is structured, is that we have strayed too far from the path. We have strayed too far from how it was practiced when it was initially brought to the people, you know, in the 7th century. 
And in order for us to reclaim our glory and our role in the world, we need to live and trade and structure society as it was 1,400 years ago. And that was starting to take shape, and it eventually morphed into a militant movement where they said if the governments themselves won't start becoming more conservative, then it needed to be done by force. So there's a, you, know, you had the Islamic Revolution of Iran, right, and then you had a number of events throughout the 70s in Saudi Arabia, and so the Taliban were the latest iteration that say, yeah, we are a militant force and we will do this by force. So they came over, took over the country and said, we are establishing a caliphate, which is you know, what it was in the, in the 7th century, and we're going to live and work as we did back then. And that's why they came in, and overnight you had the change of government, you had a different name, you had a different flag, different anthem, and that's when the eyes of the, the Western world started opening up to that, right? That's where you had things like the kite runner, right, which opened up the eyes of many to what it was like then. And overnight, right, you had the all-covering female burqa, which was synonymous with Afghanistan, but that wasn't the norm prior. It wasn't something that was, you know, something that existed. I mean, sure, it might have in the rural areas, but definitely wasn't as ubiquitous as it became. Women weren't allowed to leave the home, right? Girls banned from education. Any female that left the home without a, a male chaperone, you know, could have been beaten or arrested. You had incredibly barbaric law and order where maybe perhaps if you're caught stealing a loaf of bread from the local markets, you'd have your hand amputated. You know, if you'd committed some other bigger crime, you might be put in the middle of the local football or cricket ground and stoned to death to be made an example of to the tens of thousands of others. It was incredibly barbaric. And so getting back to the point about the beard, right, there were very literal people that look at the text and say, yep, this is how it was done, so we're going to do that. And so there's, there's some text that says that the, uh, a, a man's beard should be a fist long. So like dads, you know, we're, we're, we're Asian in genetics. I'm very proud of this, that I can do this. Um, <laughs> Dad definitely can't, and so his, his beard was much shorter, and, and so you know, the Taliban put his fist under his chin and said, it has to come out from underneath the hand. That's how long it has to be. Um, and I think he got a free pass because he said, you know, you, Hazara, can't grow beards that well. So. But, you know, that's a small but funny and, and also incredibly scary experience to go through. Really scary thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, you escaped to Pakistan. Yeah though I was not convinced you would be able to during, during the reading of your book. But then how did you end up in Indonesia in a boat that was not seaworthy mm. with 400 other people? How did you get there? It's a really good question, and, and uh, I'm going to skip over the details to leave enough interest for people to go buy my book at the end of tonight's, <laughs> end of tonight's uh, talk, right? Shout-outs to the Paper Plus team. We could just gloss over it yeah, all together if you gloss want. Yeah, let's just gloss over it. We'll go straight to the signing. It's very dangerous and exciting. <laughs> yeah. But so, well, let's yeah. talk about... No, no, let's, let's do it. Uh, sure? I, so we find ourselves in a refugee camp on the outskirts of a city called Quetta, Pakistan. Quetta is a city of over a million people. And throughout the late 90s, more and more refugees, mostly Hazara Afghans, have crossed the border and established almost like an informal settlement, which becomes like a tent city on the outskirts of Quetta. And it, it, just through talking to other people and other family members and relatives and friends of friends, people kind of know that, hey, maybe there's other families here we might be able to find refuge or connection or whatever. So Quetta becomes kind of the meeting point. And so we find ourselves here living in, in this tent city outside Quetta, 
And when you're a refugee, you kind of, um, you know, your choices are very obvious. You've got two choices, right? Which is one, you know, you might uh, wait it out in whatever accommodation or shelter that you have, right? Be it a tent city, be it informal accommodation with relatives, be it whatever. You wait it out and you hope that the situation in your home country improves so that you can go back, return, pick up your life, resume your business, get back to work, right? That's one option. And the clear question with that is who knows when or how long that might be. And the perfect example of this is if you look at the you know, situation facing Ukrainians right now, when they packed up three or four months ago when the missiles started falling down on Kiev, uh, you know, I wondered, I wondered when those parents were packing up their lives, did they think, you know, I'll be back next week or next month or I'll be back before Christmas? Who knows when or if they will be ever able to be returned and now they're sheltering in Poland or wherever else in Eastern Europe. Same with the Syrians, right? In 2011 when that civil war kicked off, Maybe when these families fled into neighboring Turkey or Jordan or Lebanon, maybe they thought, shit, have I turned the oven off, right? Am I, <laughs> am I going to come back next week or next month? And now, 12 years later, that war is still raging on. So that's the obvious problem with choice one. You can wait, who knows how long. And option two is that you apply to, to the UN and you hope for re resettlement overseas, right? You apply... Hopefully you get shortlisted, you're interviewed, you provide evidence, you go through the entire span of works required. But the sheer situation is that it's a supply-demand issue, right? Then the, the supply of refugees keeps going up, civil conflict and climate change, and the demand for refugees goes down because these countries, obviously, you know, it's not a very attractive thing to be bringing in these refugees, right, politically. And so 0.1% of refugees are resettled overseas. So the average wait time from application to maybe assuming you get a positive answer is about 15 years, right? And that's the situation facing these people, right? Mum, dad, couple of kids. Those are your two choices, right? Wait it out or wait it out. And so naturally, you spoke about how we got to Indonesia. You look for another way out. You look for another path forward. If you have the risk tolerance, if you have the means, financial and otherwise, you look for some other path forward. And back then, through whispers and rumors of speaking with other people in the refugee camps, that other path forward was to physically get yourself on the shores of a foreign country. Literally arrive on foot, by boat, whatever, to a country and say, can you please hear me out? And for whatever reason, in 2001, that was Australia. I recently did a book tour of Australia last month, and uh, uh, someone asked, hey, Abbas, why did your family choose Australia? Was it because, you know, we had just hosted the, uh, the uh, 2000 Sydney Olympics, right? And, and, and Australia looked super attractive on TV. And I said, no, it wasn't there. We didn't have time to watch the 2000 Olympics. But, um, but we did see an ad on TV with a lovely lady in a bikini that asked, where the bloody hell are you? <laughs> and that kind of convinced us we have to go there. You know, it looks great. No, there was no real science or logic or rationale behind it. It was, 
if you draw a circle around Pakistan, right, five, six thousand kilometers wide, the nearest country that's a signatory to the UN Refugee Convention is Australia in the South Pacific or Western Europe. And that's it. You either go overland and try to get into Europe or you go by sea and try to get to Australia. And that's why that was chosen in 01. And so again, cutting the story short, we make our way and get ourselves to Indonesia and living again undocumented in these refugee camps. Not so much a refugee camp, but just kind of in this abandoned warehouse, I don't know what to call it. One night in the middle of the night, you know, get woken up and the handlers that we were dealing with, I you know, say tonight's the night, you know, a boat had been found and we all get bundled up into this minivan and driven through Jakarta, right? We were on the outskirts of Jakarta, through the jungle, out to the shoreline. It's pitch black, you can't see anything. And then sure enough, more and more van loads of people keep arriving. It's a huge hub of activity. It's pitch black, you can't see anything. You can kind of hear the crashing of the waves. And, you know, the handlers say, there it is, you know, pointing to this, you know, this fully serviced P&O cruise line that was going to take us, <laughs> it's going to take us across the Indian Ocean. It was this, you know, this rickety old wooden fishing boat that was tied up to some rocks with some bits of rope. And, and there it is again, right? That's, that's your decision point number two. Here before you is this vessel that may or may not get you to your point of salvation and the chance to rebuild and reset your life, assuming it survives, right? So you get on and you hope for the best. Or you don't get on and you are a stateless family with no papers, no rights in a foreign country. You could be end up begging or homeless on the streets of Jakarta. Right, that's decision point number two, right? I talked about decisions there, right, of having forced to leave our village, of then forced to leave the refugee camp, and now we're, we've got another intersection to navigate. And that particular chapter in the book was incredibly hard to write. You know, one, I had to speak to my parents about it and ask for them to relive that conversation that they had as they were literally tossing up whether they climbed the ropes onto the boat. But two... It's very hard for me to get that right in, in terms of the words and the emotions for readers like yourselves because, you know, we'll never have to face that question, right? We'll never have to face that situation. Just to kind of, how can you, holding your child to your breast, decide, yep, I'm going to get on this boat. It's an impossible, impossible situation to be in. And sadly, it's the reality for so many people. It's a sad reality for so many people who are just fleeing desperation. You know, one of the saddest things to come out of the European migrant crisis was, you know, all of those bodies that wash ashore on the beautiful, you know, Italian and Greek beaches. You know, how can you, as a mother, as a father, climb on board this boat knowing that you might drown in the Mediterranean? But I guess, I guess this book kind of highlights what people are actually fleeing, right? And it opens up the eyes of so many to the, the sheer desperation that's out there. And that's why we managed to get ourselves on that boat. Well, the boat, without giving anything away, because the Tampa story is a very famous one, the boat was not seaworthy. <laughs> and after a storm, it, it was going down. Now, you were rescued by a Norwegian yeah. boat, the Tampa. 
That's right. Oh, man. You know, we, we survived the night of the storm and we are um, scanning our situation, surveying the wreckage of our boat, looking out. This is on the third day in the open water in the Indian Ocean, trying to figure out where to next. There's no power, no propulsion. And uh, everyone just kind of said, this might be it, right? I say that lightly. And we're scanning the horizon. In the late afternoon, there's a small black dot that's piercing the line between the sky and the sea. Everyone's hollering and shouting, holding up their children, waving, all this sort of stuff. And it starts getting, we don't know if it's going away or coming towards us, but it becomes obvious it's coming towards us and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and we can make it out, right? It's this giant container ship. You guys know how big those things are. They're massive, right? And it's hurtling directly towards us to the fact that we don't even know if it's seen us, right? It's this big. And then, you know, finally starts to, does an arc, turns around, and it's clearly seen us. It pulls up right next to us, and we're just being rescued. We were rescued by the MV Tampa, hence the name of the book and what would be later known as the Tampa Affair. The Tampa was this 260-meter-long behemoth of a container ship there was a pride jewel of the Norwegian Wilhelmsen shipping line. It was going from Fremantle in Western Australia up to Singapore. And it just diverted course to come and rescue us. And two sailors come down the 12 flights of stairs, jump on board our boat. For many people, it was the first white person they had seen. And this guy, first officer Christian Molto, is every bit the Scandinavian, right? Six foot six, blonde, blue eyes, right? We can't speak a word of English, but we don't need to be told, up you get, we start climbing these stairs. Nothing, right? No personal possessions, no luggage, nothing, because it would slow down the process. And as this rescue operation is happening, the boat keeps getting slammed up against the metal hull of the ship, and it's starting to fall into pieces. And as we're getting up, another sailor at the top writes a number on our wrist to try and figure out how many people had been rescued. And the final number was 438. And I'm told tonight there's a little over 300 people here, right? 433 mostly Hazara Afghan asylum seekers, five Indonesian crew. And as the last person, as First Officer Christian Malto went downstairs, checked to see everyone's clear, as he jumped off the little boat, that thing sank and it's now sitting at the bottom of the Indian Ocean with all of the possessions that people had brought with them to begin their new life. But we had just been rescued. And we were rescued by this Norwegian captain, Captain Arne Renan, who would later go on to win numerous bravery awards by the United Nations. And so begins this illustrious event known as the Tampa Affair. Some of you may recall it from the time. Some of you may recall seeing it on TV and just seeing that red boat out in the water. And this, this book kind of helps me square that away and tell our story because it became such a big story, but not for a minute throughout that entire saga were we able to tell our story because it was so stage managed by the Prime Minister's office and in Canberra. They didn't want to humanise it. They didn't want to see the faces of these desperate families because other Australian families, if they were to see babies, and if they were to see women, and if they were to see children, be like, man, they kind of look a little bit like us. So it was incredibly stage managed. We might as well have been on another planet. 
there was no contact with the outside world. We were boarded by 50 SAS soldiers, fully kitted. That was our welcoming party. Fully kitted, armed to the teeth, to expect a hostile reception. And that was all stage managed by the Prime Minister's office in Canberra. Now, I delve into the politics behind that. But the point of it was this. And when I was asked to write this book, it was because throughout that entire saga, all people saw was the red container ship out there in the water. And it was portrayed as a national security threat. It was portrayed, the words being used by the press and the, uh, the Prime Minister's office were incredibly dehumanizing and othering, right? Illegals, boat people, a brown wave, you know, a national security threat, aliens. Not one time will we ever see a, a picture of a face of someone on board, a name, a personal statement or a story, and it was done strategically and calculatedly to completely dehumanize it all, just to sanitize it all up. And this was a chance for us to tell our story. Now, I'm conscious of time, and so we're going to just move forward a little bit, but to say that 300 or so of you from the Tampa ended up in Nauru, some of you for three years. That's right. But your family was one of the ones brought to New Zealand, the mm -hmm. invitation of Helen Clark. And could you talk about the experience of first arriving in Auckland? I know that when New Zealand was mooted, yeah. that some of your fellows, fellow uh, refugees said, what is New Zealand? Who is he? <laughs> Are we going to get to meet him? Yeah. New Zealand was not a bikini on television. No, you wasn't. really didn't know what you were expecting, no? No, not at all. We, uh, so we were kept out in the open ocean for up to five weeks while the Tampa saga, the standoff, continued. And the New Zealand government says, look, we can't let this go on. We'll take on some of those people. And we'll take those of them in family units, right? Mum and dad and kids and any underage kids travelling alone. And that was a turning point in my life, right? We, were spent, we spent one day on Nauru, and then an Air New Zealand charter plane came and picked us up and brought us to Mangere, the refugee resettlement centre in South Auckland. September 27, 2001. 9-11 had happened while we were out in the open ocean, and we had no idea about it because of how enclosed we were. We saw the images of it when we arrived to Auckland. And those who weren't lucky enough to fit the criteria that New Zealand had, had, had placed, they were the first inmates in Australia's policy of offshore detention. Some of them would spend up to three, four, five years in prison, 40 degree heat, 100% humidity on a rock in the Pacific. Right, Nauru is essentially one giant old phosphate mine but life for us, I mean, it took a turn, right? How lucky were we? We did our six-week orientation program at Mangere, and then we were dispersed throughout the country, right? Through just resettlement, wherever social housing was available. And for me and about half of the other Tampa families that were rescued and, and resettled in New Zealand, that was gonna be Christchurch. So we resettled to Christchurch just before Christmas, 2001. And I just want to read Can a read passage. Yeah, I just want to read a passage. So we had just finished our program, and we arrived. We fl get flown down to Christchurch, and this is us as we're about to uh, walk into our state house, right, our new home after being on the road for nine months since we had left little old Sungjoy. Paradise 
was a state house on Ballantyne Avenue in Upper Rickerton, with a white picket fence, a vibrant green front yard, a fireplace complete with a brick chimney and a cream weatherboard exterior. Every family had a team of volunteers pick them up from the airport. These were everyday Kiwis who had replied to a Red Cross ad in the local paper. They had received some training for RMS, Refugee and Migrant Services, an agency that would be a critical support for us over the next few years. Half a dozen volunteers had been assigned to the Nazari clan. There was Ola and Gavin and Prue, Colin and our favourites, Chris and Jan. These volunteers would become an integral part of our lives. On that first journey, our volunteers drove along Memorial Ave to Island Road to Church Corner and finally to Ballantyne Ave, a tree-lined street with a row of neat houses set back from the road. Walking through the blue front door into our new home was like emerging from underwater and taking a huge gulp of air. We were a long way from our thatched roof mudbrook homestead in Sungjoy. I can only imagine what it must have been like for my parents. The feeling of, of being rescued by the Tampa, of then arriving to New Zealand, and then of being resettled and given the keys to our house in Christchurch, it is so hard to describe. I mean, I was a little kid at the time, and I was just in wonder. And when I was writing this book, I was just trying to imagine myself in my parents' shoes, having them actively make the decision at every step of the way, and now for that to finally pay off and see us safe and secure and warm and dry I can only imagine, right? And there are many parents in the room. I hope you, you know, empathise with that feeling. And you talk uh, very movingly, I think, about all the support that your family was given, including something at Hadley College, a homework. homework uh, would you tell club. us about that? Was it just for refugee families? It was for ethnic and migrant kids, essentially. Basically, so I learned my ABCs as a little nine-year-old boy at the Refugee Resettlement Centre in Mangere, and then we were went to primary school and we started off in ESOL and then gradually tested out and went mainstream. Um, we knew nothing of the language in New Zealand, right? None of us spoke a word of English. And then uh, there was this after-school program called the Homework Club. I think it was a government-funded program and it's still continuing to this day at Hagley College in Christchurch where kids of ESOL backgrounds, not just refugee backgrounds, but ESOL kids can go after school twice a week, Tuesdays and Thursdays, get help with their homework and get that extra little boost and accelerator so they can improve their language. That was an enormous pathway for us, right? And as you mentioned in the intro, right, later on I'd go and place third in the New Zealand National Spelling Bee and that was a feel-good moment too. Um, Didn't your picture end up in a newspaper in Afghanistan? My, that's right, you know, I did this thing for the press and someone picked it up and uh, I think some years later my uncle, who was still living in Afghanistan, he said... I think I recognised this boy, and this was at the time when we didn't have WhatsApp or on our phones, you know, he managed to somehow get our number here, and he said, did your boy win some spelling bee or whatever? And it was a pretty, <laughs> it, he was in the middle of Afghanistan nowhere, and somehow it, that, it made the papers over there, right? What an awesome little experience. But you're right, just on that point, though, about service and wraparound help, there are so many agencies out there um, who did help us, you know, Refugee and Migrant Services, the Red Cross, volunteers, the Homework Club, our teachers, our interpreters and translators for agencies such as Language Line. All of those things go so far in making that transition easier. Because when we arrived to this country, we didn't have anything. Like I said, when we were rescued by the Tampa, 
we literally just had the clothes on our backs, right? No paperwork, no bags, not even personal belongings, right? I remember distinctly I didn't have shoes on, which I'd later regret very much on the hot metal deck of the Tampa for five weeks, right? My feet were that thick, blistered. But we arrived here and we were wrapped by support. Of course, there's going to be people who complain that it's not culturally sensitive enough or it's not people aren't trained up enough or there's shortages here and there or whatever. Those complaints will always be there. But the fact that there are people who put their hand up and say, I'll take them to the doctor's appointment, I'll take them to show them the bus timetable, I'll take them to their footy games, that means a hell of a lot. That means so much. Will you tell the audience about one thing that had to be explained to your family, which is the letterbox? <laughs> letterbox. I mean, we don't have letterboxes in Afghanistan, <laughs> right? If there's a sale on at the local market, it's run done through word of mouth. Nobody has flyers that arrive in the mail. And so we had a letterbox at 23 Ballantyne Ave. No idea what it was for, but every day we'd go to school and come back and it would be filled with paper. <laughs> now, who the hell is filling up our letterbox with this stuff? Can't even read English. And then we collected all of this, put it up in the boxes, right? And at the end of the week when Jan, our volunteer, would come and help us out, take us to the park, she'd see the kitchen bench was full of this. She's like, you know you can throw this out. I said, why? It must be important. Well, who's sending us all these letters? <laughs> and it was all just, you know pack and save and new world and coupon books and all the rest of it, right? Small stuff like that, when I think back on it now, man, I laugh. But it was so foreign to us at the time. It was so foreign, right? But, man, it's awesome that we went through that, right? Because we laugh about it, but they're such formative experiences, and it'll stick with me forever. You know, there's a, um, a line in the musical Hamilton, it's immigrants we get the job done. Yeah. And reading about your family, and also not just your family, but friends and other people in your community, the number of jobs people had, the raspberry picking every mm. summer, yeah. the children getting up at dawn to help the family. And yeah. I was thinking about you when you had your first real job mm -hmm. in the Treasury working as a policy analyst in Wellington. And on Friday and Saturday nights, you drove a taxi. That's right. And on Saturday during the day, you went to the family business, auto yeah. wreckers, yeah. and did paperwork. Yeah. That work ethic, was it really ingrained in you by your parents? Yeah, that's right. You know, um, one of the things that I get from people who read my book is that it gives them a, a greater sense of perspective on the refugee and immigrant experience in New Zealand. And that perspective is one of the main reasons why I wrote this book, because sadly, the perspective of refugees is quite negative, not just in this country, but just generally, right? the way it's portrayed is that these guys are, they're not skilled, they're, uh, you know, they're a weight on the welfare system, that they are cutting ahead in front of genuine Kiwis, etc., etc. That perspective is pervasive. And so for me, one of the main reasons why I wrote this book was to tell our story and say, yeah, we arrived here, and we arrived here and we needed to be, have our hand held and be spoon-fed every step of the way. But finally, after a couple of years, we learned to stand up on our own feet and become independent and regain our agency and become, start to contribute back, learn the language, get accustomed and integrated into the culture 
become educated and employed and set up businesses and, and just get after it, right, and just really take the opportunity with both hands. And that was, you know, my experience, what you just described, right? But there are so many others, right? The first interaction that most, I guess, uh, Kiwis get with people of a refugee or immigrant background is, you know, taxi driving. It's a classic, right? My dad did it, my uncles did it, because it's the simplest job you can get. All you have to do is drive. And they all begin there. And hopefully you, you save up a bit of money so that you, maybe you can open a dairy, right? The next kind of easiest job. And then you learn to step up, and then the kids after that, then they have the financial base, they own their own home, then the kids can go off to uni and become, do whatever. It's a stepping stone. It's, it's a, the, the first generation lays down the foundations, second generation then builds the rest of the house, and it all flourishes from there. And the work ethic is so strong, like you said, it's ingrained in me through my parents, because they worked so hard, right? I remember summers as a kid, you know, raspberry picking, right? Fruit picking, huge fan of that, because I went through that, and one, you'd earn a bit of money, but two, you'd learn how valuable the essence of hard work is, right? You get up at the crack of dawn when you don't want to. Then you go and you pick fruit for the whole day when the rest of your friends are out there having the time of their lives. It gives you that sense of perspective. And that's why I didn't hold back. I could have easily avoided telling that story here because it might have made us look desperate or unskilled or whatever. But I wanted to say, yep, this is what we went through and we did it. And maybe we didn't like it at the time, but boy, am I glad that I actually did it. I was really <laughs> impressed with that. that. And didn't you say your, it was through raspberry picking that your family was able to buy their first car? That's right. You know, we, <laughs> we bought this this thing that was already as ancient as like a Greek chariot, right? It was already, it was already on its last legs and ran around for a couple of years and it finally gave up the ghost. And then, <laughs> and then this was at the time, early 2000s, right? Before smartphones, you put an ad in the paper or whatever and hopefully someone will come and buy this, this junk and take it out of your driveway. And nobody did. And we put like a for free sign on the window and nobody was interested. And, and Dad got real sick of it and said, surely, you know, we, there must be a market in this, right? And he called up a scrap dealer and said, hey, man, how much are you going to buy this thing off me for scrap? He's like, oh, you bring it over and we'll charge you 500 bucks to get rid of it. And he thought, bloody hell, there's got to be a better way. And Dad's quite an entrepreneur, right? And he said, maybe there's a market for secondhand car parts overseas. So he rings around his friends over there and he says, do you think if we shipped car parts to you guys, you could sell it? To the Middle East, right? And from there it can go all over. And he's like, oh my God, yeah, because people over there, they can't afford a, a new Hilux or whatever, but they might be afford a new motor to keep their current Hiluxes going for a few more decades, right? And so we set up this thing. Kiwi Car Removals was born in a little warehouse on Montreal Street in Christchurch. My dad and five other Tampa families, right, the heads of the households, we had a bit of money and we all pulled together our life savings. And they didn't know anything about business in New Zealand. None of the qualifications, none of the legislation, the regulation, all of that. They just, just went at it, right? At the crack of dawn, right up until midnight, just getting after it, you know, dismissing all the paperwork, which then I'd have to come clean up. But they got after it, and Kiwi Car Removals grew into this massive beast. And, and um, now, you know, we're based in Wellington, and we employ, you know, 45 people, and it's just an incredible, incredible story. And I talk about that in my book, The Kiwi Dream, right? It's, it's 
It helps that New Zealand has the oldest car fleet in the OECD. <laughs> right, I think, I think that has a big part to help. But man, it was tough in those early years, right? You're setting up a business in a foreign country where maybe you can't even speak the language up to 20% fluency. Take a risk, you put in the hours, and it pays off. And that's kind of the entire story. Well, there's one element of that story, and that's to do with your oldest brother. Would mm. you tell us about how Hussein was able to come here? Yeah, so when we made the journey to leave Sangjoy, and it took us almost nine months to eventually be resettled to New Zealand, uh, my oldest brother Hussein wasn't with us. You know, we'd sent him to Iran the year before. And, you know, he never went through something I always give him shit for, right? You didn't come here on a boat. <laughs> but when he never went through that, and we were finally resettled to New Zealand, uh, as happy and as joyous as that experience was for my parents, right? The eldest son wasn't there. And, and so after getting our citizenship, we were able to apply for family reunification. And he had to get all his medicals and all of the pieces of paper and the documents together because he was also living illegally in Iran, right? He didn't have any rights. But he managed to get that together and he's finally granted a visa and he also had to do the six-week orientation program at Mangere and and the day he walked out of that camp, my mum and dad stood outside the gates for him to walk out and they all, the three of them got on the flight back to Christchurch and it was just, we were whole again after so long, right? And our Ballantyne Ave, our house was already a magical place, but it took on a new energy when we were all whole again. It was just the, the, the perfect ending. Yeah. And, and he finally took over the business from yeah, your father. Yeah, and he, him and, and my other older brother, Sam, you know, we, they run the two, two directors of our business in Lower Hutt. I know we're in Blenheim, but if ever you guys need car parts, <laughs> all right, we do ship nationwide, all right? <laughs> Kiwi car removals, you won't forget it. <laughs> yeah. We have lots more to talk about, but I'm conscious that we're going to go to questions in a moment. Now, when we do go to questions, um, because this is being recorded, there is a mic um, that you can speak into, and, and so please speak into the mic. Yes. But before we go to questions, I just would like to ask you, so the mics are, are bearing down on you. Please gather your thoughts. And remember, questions only, no comments. Um, you were in Christchurch the day of the mosque shootings. And you were, in fact, outside one of the mosques. And someone who was a very good friend of your family was, in fact, the first victim. Could you just talk a little bit about that experience of that day for you? <clears throat> March 15th, uh, 2019, it was a Friday afternoon. I remember two days really, really well, right? I remember the, the earthquakes in Christchurch. I was in high school at the time. I remember it so well. Tuesday, 12.51, and March 15th, 2019. I was just down there. I was living in Wellington at the time. I was just down there because me and some mates were going to go do some, um, some hiking through Arthur's Pass National Park, right? So I arrived there that morning, was having lunch with my sister, I get this alert on my phone, active shooter in Christchurch, and we just kind of ignore it. And then another alert, you know, active shooter in a mosque in Christchurch, and it's just the most hard to describe that feeling. And we were just having lunch down the road, so I kind of sprinted down, because I knew there would be members of our community there, not particularly my family, but I knew there would be members of the wider Afghan community there. And sure enough, we got there, and it was just... You know, was, all hell had broken loose, right? There was cops and media and 
you know, family members and everyone was screaming and shouting and we had no idea the extent of the damage at the time. And then it would later become obvious, right, how horrendous it was. It's real hard to describe that day because it was it shook this entire country, right? It just oh man. When I recall that day and how peaceful it began, right? I was just having lunch and all of a sudden the whole day was just shattered. And then that night we get we have like a you know, a community meeting at one of the elders' house and everyone's just pouring out their heart. You know, will I leave my daughter and my wife to leave home, right? They wear a headscarf. Do we need to have armed guards at our community center from now on? How can I run my Middle Eastern bakery business now? Will I get targeted? It was just a horrendous conversation to be having. Everyone was just, and these are natural concerns to have. You know, people have been living there for 20 years, and some have said, This is not the New Zealand that I know. How could this happen? And talking about perspective before, one of the elders got up and he said, You know, I understand where you guys are coming from, but can I tell you something? And he says, When we arrived to Mangri off the Tampa, we went through customs, you know, they put, this, put us on a bus, and as we're heading into the Mangri refugee camp, the person driving the bus, you know, he closed the curtains inside and someone says, we're trying to, we just arrived in a new country. We'd arrived in the middle of the night, we'd been at customs the whole night, the sun was rising, it's almost a symbolically new day for us. Of course we want to see the country that we just arrived into. And he says, no, you know, we've heard intelligence that there might be protesters and people throwing eggs or stuff, you know, because they don't want you guys here because this was three weeks after 9-11. And we said, oh wow, okay. It's a silent bus ride to the refugee resettlement centre, and then on the final corner, as we stretch into the um, as we stretch into the gates, you know, someone peeps outside because there's a bit of hollering outside, and there's a couple of guys there, signs and waving and shouting. It didn't affect us; we couldn't speak English. And uh, this is a couple of people, and it's starting to drizzle a little bit. And then we get into the refugee centre, and it's you know, we're welcomed by the most lavish welcome, the biggest feast we'd ever seen, beautiful porphyry ceremony. All the staff were welcoming, embraced us with hugs, and went to our rooms, and there was blankets and donated food and clothes. Finally, we could change our damn clothes. And he said, guys, you know, in this moment of darkness, there's going to be a hell of a lot of questions, right? But... In this moment, do we choose to focus on the two individuals that day who tried to rain on our parade, or do we choose to focus on those hundreds of staff members who tried to welcome us and, and give us the welcome that we deserve? And this was right off the bat. So in that moment, do we choose to focus on the actions of one individual, or do we choose to focus on how this city and this country is coming together? And that's so powerful, and that's something that sticks with me to this day, right? How important and how powerful it is to maintain perspective. Thank you. Before, no, 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 no clapping. We've got to go to the audience for questions. <laughs> You're not permitted to clap until... Is, if anyone has a question, would you put your hand up so that someone with a mic can see you? It's quite... <clears throat> 
Everyone's in stunned silence at the moment. As they're thinking, I was going to say, no, some of the books on. are pre-signed out there and some of, them, <laughs> so, some of them aren't signed in case you want to personally dedicate it to someone, but I'll, I'll be sticking around at the end of tonight to talk to you all, so okay. I'm in no rush. Yes. Oh, there's a question up here. Please. Ma'am, go ahead. Thank you. Is it working? I can no. hear you, can and I'll repeat your question. Yeah, go on. What, what is the state of the Hazara people now under the Taliban? Um, when the Taliban took over last year, uh, everyone had fears about, the new, about their takeover. But the people, again, that often feel that the most were the Hazara people, right? Because we had suffered so much under the previous Taliban regime in the 90s. So we thought that they'd revert back to that. Their initial words in their conferences and their statements that they made they wanted to give off at least the illusion that no, we have changed, that we have modernized and we have learned the mistakes of the past. But words, you know, actions speak louder than words. And so within a few weeks after the media kind of died down and people moved on to other tragedies and conflicts around the world, Taliban have kind of resumed that same mentality and practices that they had in the 90s. And so the exodus out of Afghanistan continues, and again, it's disproportionately the Hazara people because when they took over, one of the first things that they did was to, you know, the, was to divide up land and, and divvy it out to their own supporters. And the most fertile lands are, you know, in the central highlands of Afghanistan, which receives a bit more rainfall, and, and, it's, and it's, you know, the Hazara live there and cultivate and tend to their animals, and they came in and kind of gave people seven days to, to essentially just pack up and leave. And where there was pockets of resistance, they were you know, met with brutal force. So long story short, it's, a, you know, it's almost like history is repeating itself. And Hazara Afghans make up the bulk of Afghan refugees. Abbas, there's another question over here. Tēnā koe, ko Niki ahau. Tēnā koe. In this COVID, mid-COVID world we find ourselves in, we, there's a lot of talk about um, shortage of people and labour and I can say to my husband how crazy this is that there are so many people, for want of a better word, a bit discarded around the world um, with your experience and your studies and your, yeah, just your life, vision or hope of how we might be able to reconcile these issues. Yeah, I think it's sad because like you mentioned before, immigrants got an incredibly uh, good work ethic because we have seen what it is like to not have opportunity. Right? We were so starved of opportunity in our home countries that when we arrive in a, in a country which has security and, and, and prosperity like New Zealand, we just soak it all up. That's why people are immediately, they'll just get into any job they can, and the simplest being, you know, driving buses and taxis to working their way up. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is to say, these guys aren't here to, to live on welfare and, and say, yep, yeah, we've made it. It's to say that, thank you for the opportunity, now it's time for me to give back and contribute. And I hope I've done that through this book and through my speaking engagements that I take on. Um, but it's going to take a while for that mentality to shift to say these guys are not a burden but rather an investment that will pay off. And sure it might take a couple of years but it will pay off and 
I just hope more and more Kiwis, not just New Zealanders, but people around the world open up their eyes to the reframing refugees as opportunities and people who will give back, right? And like I said before, I was in Australia on my book tour and I was in this place uh, outside of Melbourne in this kind of rural town and they were screaming out for laborers, people to work in the in their you know food processing factories and that kind of thing. And the local mayor had set up a partnership with the with the with the uh, state government that refugees who arrive to Melbourne they'll be shipped out to this town. And boy, they had loved it. They absolutely loved it. They were immediately working at you know of all places the McCain's French fry, uh, <laughs> you know, freezer works there, right? You're doing the, the night shift and the day shift and they were so happy about that. One, the refugees were happy, they were, had dignified work and they were earning good money and the employers were happy because they were now able to fill in that, uh, that labour shortage. And I hope that there's more and more policies like that start to come around. Oh, this is a question up here, a gentleman up there. Um, I understand the Taliban are, are quite a ruthless uh, organisation, um, but do you see, uh, is there resistance amongst the Afghanis um, and do you see a day when uh, the tali Taliban will be uh, kicked out by the Afghanis themselves? I mean, Russia's tried and failed, the US and so forth, yeah. but it's quite different, the, the home countrymen. Yeah. Um, anyone who's tried to predict the future of Afghanistan has, has kind of failed and failed miserably and I don't want to add my name to that list but I guess my personal view of it is and I'm forever the optimist and again this is just my personal bias I feel like the Taliban kind of realized that perhaps they cannot rule the way they did the first time round that in order for them to be at least welcomed by the international community as the legitimate government of Afghanistan they need to give, they need to soften up and they need to give consolations and they need to let go of some of their harder line policies. And I think there is a faction just following on social media, some Afghan journalists and, and commentators, there is a faction of the Taliban who realise that, who have grown up in the age of, of social media and, and are savvy enough to be able to read the room, who realise that and they want to steer the party or the organisation that way. But right now it's the hardliners, the people that fought and were commanders in the 90s that are in firm control of the direction of, of the organisation. And maybe there might be a toss-up or a fracture there at some point, but um, you know, history has repeated itself and it will continue repeating itself, and I don't know when or if it might happen. On my last trip to Afghanistan in 2017, and I write about it in the book, I talked about an Afghanistan that could be in Afghanistan that might have existed in a parallel universe of an Afghanistan that is wealthy and able to tap into its natural resources of which there are plenty an Afghanistan that is opens up itself to the world and reclaims itself as you know like it was back in the day is on the old hippie route right you people used to go from London to New Delhi some of you nodding their heads furiously because you probably did that um, because it was open to the world and there was a massive tourism and of course it's a beautiful country and why not, right? Why not? How tragic it is that it is in that situation despite its potential. So I'm forever hopeful that it might happen. Just don't know when. Abbas, there's another question over here, and it might be our last question. We'll Make see. it good. 
Make, do, that, do that thing where they say, actually, I've got two questions. <laughs> I've got one anyway. Um, I think you're extraordinarily uh, lucky to avoid the narrow thing. And most of us were absolutely shocked that the Aussies would pile, uh, you know, uh, produce a current concentration camp in Australia. I mean, what we, we were brought up in concentration camps in Europe and the thought that they'd do such a thing in Australia was shocking to most of us. Um, on the other hand, the Aussies have always had a, uh, I suppose us to a certain extent too, have had a fairly strong attitude about controlling immigration. From, and the Aussies are only a couple hundred miles from Indonesia. And they were starting to get lots and lots of boats coming across from Indonesia and they had to make an example. And that narrow crowd was the example and it's worked quite well. Have you got any views on that? Yes, yeah, and, and one fantastic question to finish off and allow me a couple of minutes to kind of elaborate. Um, you're right, there was a time when, when f during the Vietnam War or the Indo-Chinese War as uh, Cambodians and people from Laos and Vietnam escaping the communist forces there, you know, they jumped on boats to try and get to safer harbours and the vast majority of them ended up in Malaysia and Thailand and Singapore and others and a few went even further south through the Malacca Straits down and made their way to Indonesia, right? And when those first boats arrived, and that's where the term boat people came from, when those first boats arrived, they were welcomed by the Australian government and by the Australian community and the Australian political establishment. And they were welcomed with open arms and, I don't know the exact figure, but tens of thousands of mostly Vietnamese or Indo-Chinese people were welcomed to Australia. And, and they've gone on, and you know, this was in the 60s, 70s, and now their second, third generation uh, Vietnamese Australians. But somewhere along the line, the politics shifted from one of welcome to one of kind of demonization. And like I said in the book, I did a bit of research into this and started off in the 90s, right? The p economy at the time wasn't roaring as it should and just, you know, with international, with globalization, with open borders, the streets of the main cities of, you know, Melbourne and Brisbane and Sydney you walk down the street and you'll see a lot more foreign faces. You'll see a lot more Asians, you see a lot more brown faces, a lot more non-white faces. And there was, uh, that wasn't because of illegal immigration, it just, you know, Australia opened up to the world and more, you know, just normal, regular migration. And there was an element of politics there that didn't like that change that was happening. And while you couldn't close down the regular or the legal migra migration routes, you could very easily point and say it's these boat people that are arriving by boat. Even though figures-wise, right, it's less than maybe two or three percent of total arrivals at the time. Right now it's 0.01 percent or whatever it is. But it's very easy to pinpoint one boat carrying maybe a few dozen or 50 or 60 people versus the vast majority of people who arrive by plane. And so it became vilified. And, and like you said before, Australia does have a, a much more checkered history when it comes to immigration, right? We all, you know, the white Australia policy, right? Terra nullis, all of those things which I touch on in the book. So immigration is a, it's a much more hotly contested issue over there. And I'm not going to start, start, you know, shy away from the fact that here in little old New Zealand, we're way further south 
that boat arrivals will never be a reality in this country and that the offshore detention policy has worked, right? It's, it's, we've imprisoned, well not we, but the Australian government has imprisoned a few thousand people on Nauru, on Manus Island, on Christmas Island as a deterrence and it has worked and it's deterred uh, people smugglers because they know that they can't get their goods overseas. But in doing so, it's come at a cost, right? There's the, the clear damage to your reputation, right? Of you essentially running these camps on foreign grounds, essentially Guantanamo, right? It's happening in our backyard. So it's come at a cost, but also it's double pronged in that those refugees who are in Australia, who have made it to the mainland, they're second class citizens, right? Here in New Zealand, if you arrive as a refugee, you get, put, you get given permanent residency and then you put on the pathway to citizenship. And you can get, become a New Zealand citizen within five years, assuming you meet the character grounds and all the rest of it. But in Australia, if you arrive, you are never granted permanent residency. You get given what this thing called a TPV, Temporary Protection Visa, which means that every 12 to 24 months you have to go and say, can I please stay on for another two to four years? And you have to prove yourself. And a thing as small as a speeding ticket or an unpaid fine is enough to deport you. And there are people who have been on TPVs for 20 years now, who every two years have to prove their Australianness to the Australian government. They have no sense of security. They could be deported in any minute now. And there's layers to that. The TPV is only one. So it's created this two-tiered society where refugees are not only vilified for trying to arrive, they're vilified even if they have already arrived. And that debate, I think, is now reaching ahead. This new government that's just come in has said we're going to be looking at those settings and hopefully putting these people on a pathway to citizenship. So to your point, though, I don't want to shy away from the fact that offshore detention has worked, but at what price? I think this is a really good place to stop up. There's so much more we could talk about. I encourage you all to read the book if you haven't already. Um, after we get our mics off, we'll bring Abbas through to sign copies, as he says. <laughs> He's happy to personalise them for you for all Christmas and birthday needs. Mm. So please join me in thanking Abbas Nazari. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Abbas Nazari speaking to Paula Morris at the 2022 Marlborough Book Festival. A big thanks to all the writers that have supported the festival, as well as the audiences that attended in person or listened online. If you'd like to learn more about the event, head over to marlboroughbookfest.co.nz. Thanks for listening. <laughs>